This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Tony Maida, I'm very excited to be speaking with you at the Fraud and Clients Forum in September about value-based arrangements and navigating the fraud and use laws. So let's talk a little bit about what our session is going to cover, give some background, and talk about why this is such a tight topic and what kind of issues we're seeing. So let's start off by introducing ourselves. I am Jennifer Michael. I am a member in the healthcare practice in the D.C. office of Bass, Berry, and Sims. My practice focuses on sin abuse and regulatory compliance. Prior to re-entering private practice, I worked at HHS OIG in the industry guidance branch for just under nine years. Um, started off as a line attorney, became deputy chief, and eventually chief at the time that the um, branch was working on the proposals. I left before the, the rules finalized, though. Uh, Tony? Yeah, likewise. I'm excited to be presenting with you as well at the conference in, at the end of the month. Uh, my name, this is Tony Maida. I'm a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and one of the co-chairs of our uh, fraud and abuse and reimbursement practice. Um, I also uh, am a OIG alumni. Jennifer and I overlapped for a bit. Um, I was in the, the uh, administrative and civil remedies branch uh, for about 10 years working on uh, Medicare-related uh, false claims act cases and and settling settling those cases and um, was not uh, and I think the reason why we're talking about this topic at the program is you know this is probably the most significant rulemaking for the anti kickback statute and the physician self referral law or Stark law um, in many years um, and. The agencies had heard from stakeholders that these statutes and regulations posed problems or obstacles, whether real or imagined, um, to the transition from Medicare fee-for-service payment structure to value-based payment. Um, and so the agencies took that um, to heart and spent a lot of time and effort that Jennifer can attest to, I'm sure, in coming up with a proposal uh, and, and final regulation um, that really changes the dynamic uh, uh, um, uh, and, and potentially has, provides uh, new ways or new uh, avenues for entities to structure arrangements. Yeah, and these safe harbors, as um, most listeners likely know, are unique in that, you know, in most cases, OIG has a specific type of arrangement in mind when they're promulgating a safe harbor. So, for example, like space rental or equipment rental, investments in ambulatory surgical centers. And so they have that specific arrangement in mind and then can develop safeguards that are tailored to those arrangements. And here in the value-based arena, you know, they were trying to, to promote flexibility and protect arrangements that um, you know, they, some, they had some ideas about, but also to protect arrangements that were novel and maybe not yet been 
uh, they didn't know what they were protecting. And so these are very different harbors, which makes them both, um, you know, more exciting and applicable to a much wider range of arrangements, but also um, sometimes, you know, because they couldn't anticipate all of the various types of arrangements that that um, parties might want to enter into, sometimes it's a little bit of a square peg round hole. And so Tony and I will be talking about some of the challenges that come across. Um, but first, you know, this is going to be an advanced session. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the definitions and, and, and differences between the various safe harbors. Um, my guess is a lot of the listeners here will already have attended at least one, probably more sessions about that and, and are already familiar with the safe harbors. But just for a quick background, of course, the anti-kickback statute and Stark Law are, are, are different, some overlap, but the anti-kickback statute is an intent-based criminal statute. Um, compliance with the safe harbor is voluntary. So the safe harbors, um, you know, the degree of difficulty to satisfying them is, is a little higher than some of the Stark Law exceptions. Um, the, the new value-based safe harbors are the care coordination safe harbor, which protects in-kind remuneration exchanged between VBE participants. The, the parties don't need to, to assume any financial risk, but it protects only in-kind remuneration. And then if you want to exchange cash, then you assume some financial risk. And there is the substantial downside financial risk safe harbor and the full financial risk safe harbor. There's also a safe harbor that protects um, tools and supports given to beneficiaries. And then finally, there is a, an, an amendment to the personal services safe harbor to protect outcomes-based payment arrangements. So that also protects cash payments, but that safe harbor is a little different, the value-based safe harbors, because it does have a fair market value limitation. Um, one of the, the greatest flexibilities with these new value-based safe harbors is that lack of a fair market value requirement, which gives parties a lot of flexibility. Right. And I would just re reiterate or sort of um, repeat what Jennifer said in terms of, you know, we're there, there you, many people have probably attended, you know, I think in 2021, you know, every law firm did webinars on this topic. HLA did tons of webinars. There's there's probably a good time. If you haven't looked at these regulations in a while, um, it would be good to dust off some of that material to sort of come to this session and, um, you know, with them in mind so that you, you know, can, uh, so that we can kind of get into the, the types of arrangements that we're seeing clients ask about and sort of how to apply these laws in a practical or these regulations in, in, you know, in a practical way. So you can take them back to either your clients or organization um, and be able to, to work on that. Um, I know that, uh, and I think it is fair to say that, you know, because these rules came out at the end of 2020 during the pandemic, I, I don't think there was a lot of work or interest in the provider and supplier community in, in looking at this. There was a lot of other things going on at the time um, that distracted, but I, I have definitely seen an uptick in interest over this calendar year 
on different organizations wanting to look at these regulations again, or perhaps for the first time, and to think about sort of now that medic, you know, the march towards value-based care really is happening. And how can we, is there, is, are there things or programs that the organization would like to do? And how do we accomplish those from a regulatory perspective? Um, as Jennifer said, the Stark law exceptions are different um, because Stark is different. Stark is a strict liability statute that applies to financial relationships between physicians and DHS entities. So while the kickback statute essentially applies to everyone on the other side of an arrangement where there's federal business involved, the Stark law is limited. You have to have a physician and a DHS entity. Uh, there's also a full risk financial or Stark exception. Um, there's a meaningful downside risk exception uh, to the physician self-referral law, but it relates to the compensation of the physician. Um, that the physician's compensation is at least at 10% at risk um, from the DHS entity. And then there's also a value-based arrangements um, uh, 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 exception that covers where you don't have to accept financial risk from payers. Um, and it also protects monetary compensation in contrast to the anti-kickback safe harbor, where if you're not taking on risk, only in-kind remuneration is protected or eligible for protection under the safe harbor, whereas on the, ex uh, the exception, the Stark Law exception, you can protect monetary and non-monetary compensation. And it also applies, and there are also special rules around how group practices can distribute DHS profits that are directly attributable to a physician participating in a value-based enterprise um, and so the, 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 really the, you know, the, the regulatory framework that we health lawyers have lived with for a long time, which is you have to meet a Stark exception because Stark is mandatory if you have a physician and a DHS entity, and then you have a safe, and then you have the AKS safe harbors and you can meet a safe harbor, um, but those safe harbors are voluntary and otherwise you have to do facts and circumstances analysis to assess your risk. Right. And so I, I think this session is so timely because, as I think you mentioned, Tony, I, I've also seen a very large uptick in client interest in applying these safe harbors or entering into arrangements where an entity is assuming some level of financial risk. Um, you know, sometimes we'll see entities assuming full financial risk, or maybe they think they're assuming full financial risk. So a lot of times, even if you, you feel the entity believes that they truly are at full financial risk, they might not technically satisfy that definition, that the safe harbors definition there. So I, I am seeing a lot of interest of the substantial downside financial risk harbor. And um, Tony and I are going to talk about some challenges that we have seen working through and structuring these arrangements. Um, in particular, and we're going to work through some, some hypotheticals where, you know, we talk about some of the definitional challenges we've seen or structural challenges, what it means to assume risk, um, how what it means to have a meaning assume a meaningful share 
of that substantial downside financial risk in practice, not just, you know, from an academic perspective. Um, so we're, we're excited to discuss those challenges with you and talk about how how we've how we've managed to get comfortable with the arrangements that um, that we've worked on. Right, and I think there's there are other there are and we'll explore some other places that these regulations can potentially be used in terms of you know there there are different structures and healthcare is both you know sort of consolidating and also verticalizing if that's a word where you have lots of different types of providers and organizations in the same. Um, family, um, and there are referrals coming from a variety of directions, right, I think, and additional, you know, payment structures coming out of CMS that is trying to, you know, look at physician, different types of physician practices and have, you know, a, a episode of care payment or, and particularly for primary care, since they are, you know, primary care physicians are the gatekeepers in many ways for, healthcare expenses, you know, there's more and more practices that are, you know, assuming risk associated, you know, with the, with their beneficiaries, um, you know, and everybody who has an ACO is probably is likely thinking about these regulations in terms of, you know, not just their current operations, because oftentimes you, you might have, you, you still have ACO waivers, but as those programs change and morph over time, you know, part of what we're talking about is what are what are client what are people doing today, but what are they going to need to be thinking about to do three years from now, um, and, and both from a organizational perspective, as well as you know there are other ways to use or to ways to look at think about these regulations like physician compensation, um, or uh, another topic that I think we both get an awful lot of questions about is patient engagement tools and supports. Um, there is a new safe harbor that covers patient engagement, you know, providing things of value to patients to help the manage their, the coordinate and manage their care. And in order to use that safe harbor, you have to be a value-based enterprise and the value-based enterprise participants can use that safe harbor to provide tools or, or you know, uh, things that can help patients uh, better coordinate their care. There are a number of requirements to that safe harbor, and there's a annual monetary cap on spending. Um, so that can sometimes be operationally challenging. But I think you know one of the there is one of the you know the, the administration and other people in government have talked about the importance of addressing social determinants of health as a way to reduce costs and improve outcomes. And that's safe, the patient engagement safe harbor is a vehicle um, to do that, but it may not necessarily answer all of the questions or, or cover all of the programs that uh, the organization may want to do. And so there are you know, other things to look at too, in terms of the beneficiary inducement exceptions or um, thinking about requesting an advisory opinion from OIG on a particular arrangement, um, or otherwise thinking about how to, you know, how to manage the risk or mitigate the risk, or what sort of safeguards would one put into place in order to deal with that uh, that type of arrangement. Agreed. Well, hopefully this piqued your interest. 
And um, Tony and I will be joined by Tiana Corley of OIG. The government will be represented. And we hope to see you in September at the Fraud Compliance Forum. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.